Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Performing Arts, a podcast from the New Books Network. My name is Andy Boyd. Today in the program, I'm talking with Paula Hernandez about her book, Staging Lives in Latin American Theater, Bodies, Objects, Archives. Paula, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me here, Andy. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Could we just start out with a very general question of, could you tell us a bit about your background and, and how you first became interested in theater? Sure. Um, Well, I'm originally from Buenos Aires, um, Argentina, and I came to the the U.S. a few years ago to study. I did my undergrad in Colorado, Colorado State University in Fort Collins, and then I decided to go into grad school. Um, And at the time, my then fiance uh, told me about the University of Kansas um, that had the best program in theater. Um, for Latin America, and I had no idea. So we went to the University of Kansas, and I had the pleasure of studying under George Woodyard, who was the one of the founders of the field of studies in academia of Latin American theater in the U.S. I think that's also one of the oldest programs in the country, too, isn't it? It is. It is the oldest and the first, really. Uh, yeah. There, it, it, you know, now we have a few other places. Um, so, uh, and now I'm at the University of Wisconsin Madison, where I teach and um, research Latin American theater and performance and visual arts and Latinx as well. So, great. When you were growing up in Buenos Aires, did you see a lot of theater, like as a kid? Um, yeah, I did, but uh, not the high quality theater that it has. Unfortunately, I saw a lot of what the schools would get, and mm-hmm. it wasn't the best theater at the time. <laughs> uh, but we did read a lot of theater. Uh, for I, I had wonderful literature uh, teachers who we would read. Um, you know, a lot of theater that was, you know, from Florencio Sanchez. Uh, for instance, who was one of the pioneers um, in, in the theater of early 20th century. Um, and so, you know, so it started from there or the Grotesco Criollo, uh, which, you know, we, we did a lot of, of reading theater. I did not get to see theater until my 20s, uh, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, one of the things that's always kind of bothering me about uh, American theater, United States theater, is is how sort of enthralled to neoliberalism it is. Um, and, and Latin American theater definitely seems to be less less so. So um, how, how have Latin American theater artists pushed back against, you know, what's been called the, the Washington consensus? That's such a good point. Um, so if... You know, and I, I focus on Buenos Aires right now just from my upbringing. upbringing. But if you ever go to, for instance, Buenos Aires, uh, you're going to go and see on a Friday or Saturday uh, between four to 500 different performances, theater um, in, in and around the city. And what that is, is you're going to see uh, commercial theater but also independent theater that sometimes happen at garages, you know, someone, someone's garage and not, you know, and they're all really high quality theaters and, 
people have a tendency to, um, you know, have this tradition of theater. Um, you can go to one of these uh, theaters in a garage and you're sitting next to someone who is uh, a well-known actor who wants to see good theater. So it's not the same as here. You do not have to have these huge rooms and spaces with lighting and with expensive lighting. Uh, they've always found a way to you know, make theater with what we have. Um, you know, it's a tradition also from the 50s and 60s and 70s when uh, theater, teatro de grupo or collective theater kind of had that political side to it, right? Give me a stage, whatever stage, and I will give you theater. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it's still very much alive today um, in, in all of Latin America um, that you can see amazing plays that do not have to have this kind of neoliberal stance or high price tickets or, you know, these, these kind of traditional structures where they happen. Yeah. A lot of the theater you write about in this book is broadly documentary theater and documentary theater is, is really interesting to me because I feel like a lot of documentary theater doesn't really answer the question of why is it theater? You know, I'm thinking about something like the Laramie Project. You know, why didn't they just take a film crew to Laramie and interview people? I mean, I, I, I sometimes feel like I don't understand why the live medium is is necessary when you're doing a documentary piece. Mm-hmm. But, um, but that's a question that the artists in in your book grapple with uh, in a pretty central way. Um, could you talk a bit about how they kind of answer that question? That like, why does this have to be on stage? Question. Well, I, I for sure, I know that these artists never compare themselves to film, although one of the artists I treat, Laura Arias, did a play and then a film about the, the play, which is a very interesting dialogue that she creates between stage and the film, right? But for the most part, they do this type of theater encounter because it is an encounter of people to motivate people to see a story sometimes retold by an actor witness, by someone who participated or has something to do with the story, or sometimes by people who are not trained in the theater. They're called interpreters uh, or, or occasional actors who bring their rawness, right? That, that raw body that is not trained as a document to the stage. So it creates tension. It creates a, a, the possibility of failure right in front of your eyes. And having that live aspect of documentary theater in front of you has actually made a huge impact on many different forms of the visual arts in, in and I'm focusing right in, in Latin America. So for instance, you have a group of um, in Lola Arias, Argentine Lola Arias, uh, playwright and director, she started working with a group of actors um, who had some sort of connection to the last dictatorship in Argentina. They were second generation, meaning they were the children of parents, some of whom had been disappeared, some of whom, um, you know, um, were still alive and survived it, or some of whom had nothing to do with uh, the military, you know, they, they had nothing to do with the disappearances. So what happens there is she creates a story in front of our eyes that, that kind of makes us laugh and question the archive while also telling a story from the raw emotions of people in front of you. 
And I think that's what this documentary theater does so well, that it cannot be captured really in film, is that raw, emo- raw emotion and affect that you see in front of you, a few feet away from you. You, you sense those, those pauses, you sense that tension, um, you know, you can actually get that energy. So I think it's, it's not so much that comparison with film, it's more how does theater make a stand and, and it actually, how it created a huge energy and kind of <laughs> recycling of this, because as I say in my book, um, Vivi Tejas, uh, the uh, director and curator in Buenos Aires, was kind of the beginner of what she calls biodrama, right? The biodrama aspect of how to deal with theater that is not so-called the fictional setting of theater, that everything can be theatrical if we have a different way of looking at it. And I think that's how it kind of caught fire from from her mm-hmm. and other artists who could see how potential or the power of this this type of, of theatricality that they work with a real and the fiction at the same time. Do you think part of the reason why this type of work has resonated so deeply with audiences, especially in uh, Chile and Argentina, is that it, it provides a context to think about kind of political issues that are usually not aired in public that are kind of swept under the rug. I'm thinking specifically of the the aftermath of the right-wing dictatorships in those countries, which are now, you know, I mean, Pinochet left power like 30 years ago at this point, and it still seems like that country has not had the kind of national reckoning that maybe would be necessary to fully move on from something like that. Is that part of what documentary theater provides in the Southern Cone? Yes, exactly that. That it, It's a different window that... You know, the theater, let's let's backtrack here. The tradition of theater in Latin America, especially in Argentina and Chile, since you've mentioned them right now, is so part of our culture, is so ingrained. You grow up going to the theater, even like I said at the beginning, even bad theater that I had to watch in school, but you still grew up reading theater and knowing about theater. It is quite different from the U.S., where theaters always seems to be separate right um mm-hmm. so by the, the fact that it's part of our culture and you can go anywhere for a very affordable price then theater does become another outlet of of you know opposition to what is going on and the specific case of what i'm dealing in the book is the the newer documentary theater it it brings up points of historical data historical archives and it kind of questions it in front of our own eyes. And instead of doing it in an official way, what these artists are doing, some of them, like I said before, they're actually asking second generation children, well, children, they're in their 40s now, right? But uh, asking, that, asking them to tell their stories and see how they lived the stories of their parents, some of whom are disappeared, and how does the archive of photography, of videos, of letters, kind of confront the idea of what the archive was told to them and to us. And so it's done with humor, it's done with kind of irony, and um, but at the same time, it is a very poignant point about, you know, the dictatorship in that case and how it, it evolved in our lives and how we react to that 
30, 40 years later. Uh, Chile, the same way, we have one of the places, even by Lola Arias, who did, uh, she did this, a similar play. Um, it's called Mi Vida Después, My Life, Life After in Argentina. And then she did um, El Año en Que Nací, which is the year I was born uh, in Chile. Kind of the same structure, right? Having children questioning what they heard for so many years about the archive, both family archives, national archives, official archives, and actually having the stage to question that and to relate to that um, in a very different manner. I feel like part of maybe what, I mean, I, I, I hate to go back to this theater film dichotomy, but I feel like part of what you're doing when you do a documentary play is kind of introducing the question of authenticity kind of in the form of it, because oftentimes, you know, it's it's a recreation of events or it's it's a retelling of events rather than, you know, footage from the event. Um, and that made me think about the ways that some of these artists kind of blur the line between documentary and fiction. For example, I just read Guillermo Calderon's play Kiss, <laughs> which includes uh, a sort of play within a play that is presented as a play by uh, a playwright in Syria, but is actually... You know, it's actually a play written by Guillermo Calderon. So yeah. um, what are the sort of artistic and political stakes of, of that practice, of that blurring of the line between the nonfiction and fiction? Well, I think that's that's the that's one of the major proposals of this type of theater is that that theater allows for this blurring to happen in in the present time, right? In 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 live action, um, it's not edited, and if it's edited, it's edited ahead of time, but it's not edited at the present time. So it's one of those ways to to make us laugh about the constructions that we all have in our heads about what is fiction and what is not, and kind of playing with us a lot of the times intertextual analysis like you just said you know Guillermo Calderón is very well known for creating those stories within the stories within a story right and then mm-hmm. you don't know who is actually the author or what the story is actually about because you don't you know the original you never kind of understand it um or when you understand it it's so diluted that you laugh about the story itself so i think the it, the theater brings that blurring a lot more to life than mm-hmm. the film. The film, I mean, it's there. And like I said, Lola Arias did create a film that is called um, The Theater of War, um, El Teatro de Guerra, which is, is after what she did with um, the, the play Campo Minado Minefield, which is about the Falkland Islands between Argentina and, the, and Great Britain in 1982. And so she does a film, but the film is about the play is about the rehearsal <laughs> of the play is about how the play was constructed so it's kind of that what you were explaining with calderon right that intersexuality that kind of plays humorously with how these genres are blurring themselves but for the most part is the theater that comes to life and it's the theater the presence that the the uh, you know the bodies that we have in front of us that have that sense of of authenticity, if I may use that word, right? That we have the body, we have the objects right in front of us. We have those archives building in front of us and deconstructed in front of us at the same time. Um, now that we've got a, a, a bit of the context down, I'd like to ask one a kind of theoretical question. Um, what, what would you say is the difference between what we ordinarily call realism in theater and what you call in this book theater of the real? 
Mm. Well, yeah, I mean, realism, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of that sense of naturalism that, you know, at least in the Spanish side of the theater and Latin American theater, it's more the 19th century, 20th century, beginning of 20th century, where you have this costumbrista, this kind of, uh, uh, you know, way of, of, of doing things that re that kind of related a real story or the life, right? The customs and traditions of that culture. What we see as theater of the real and as in the book, I, I use that term from uh, Carol Martin's uh, work is quite different. It's, is creating something through the objects, through the bodies, through the archives that have some sort of authenticity, that have some archival weight on them, that bring that when when they're brought into the, the the stage, then they themselves have a story to tell, right? And so that's the re, that's the real within this theater. How sometimes um, you know you don't have you just have for instance in Vivi Teja's work you have. Uh, regular people. You have philosophy professors. You have her own mother and her own aunt on stage, um, and you have these bodies that populate the stage. And what's important about that reel is that they are themselves, and they're telling you their life through showing you their objects. And at the same time, there is a story there because the theatricality that Vivi Tejas uses, which she uses uh, this this poetic measurement that she calls the uh, umf, the umbral minimo de ficción, which could be the minimal threshold of fiction, uh, something like that, where she <laughs> talks about how much or how little fiction can be in everybody's life. So that's where the real begins to work. And it's not realism. It's almost, I would say, almost the opposite of that. It's, it's right. not curated as such as curated as where are the you know what's the possibility of failure and when you have someone who's your mother you know your aunt who have never acted in their life uh, and they're sharing their photographs and they're sharing their dresses and you know and and what is this real there why is it important how does the theater become the real and the real become theater that blurring of those um of those two kind of opposing sides is so interesting in this type of theater um, that I work in, in documentary forms. Yeah, I'd love to talk more about that idea of failure. I mean, Vivi Teas has a, a ha, or had a theater company called Teatro Malo, literally bad theater. <laughs> I mean, you talked about seeing bad theater when you were a kid in Argentina. I don't think that's what you were talking about. No, no, no. <laughs> so um, what, what was the role of, what is the role of, of failure in her work and the, and the possibility of failure? Why is that important to her? Well, because um, she, in, it, she did it. She is she's known as the queen of the underworld in the sense of the under theater, right? Um, where she uh, created this group um, in the 1980s. She called it Teatro Malo because it was kind of bad theater, and she did. She started exploring ideas of how to work with, um, you know, things that were not curated or edited or crafted. And so, for instance, she uh, found this old play that had 
grammatical mistakes and had typos and it was horrible. And she said, let's do this with her group, Las Bay Biscuits, right? And and it was a, an irony. It was parody. It was parody of what theater is supposed to be. And she found in that failure something. She found the idea of what if, you know, if what if theater can actually be born from failure, right? And how can this, this be a fruitful terrain to work and then from there she uh one of the projects that Vivita just did that was to me foundational uh was called Proyecto Museos um which is a you know museum project where she asked different artists at the time to go and find theater in the museums and she sent them to very weird strange museums in Buenos Aires like the Museum of the Eye the Museum of a pharmacist. Uh, <laughs> um, and so she sent them to all of these museums to find the theatrical in it. And that idea also of of failing, right? Because how can you cre- recreate a, a museum in the theater and, and vice versa? And the same idea goes when she works with uh, people who are not trained in the theater. When she created the Biodrama Project, she invited Stefan Kaegi from... Uh, Rimini Protocol was a German Swiss group, and he, and the she had she she had him. The premise was you have to work about something about people who are alive in Argentina, and Stefan Kaegi said okay, and he gets to Buenos Aires and he finds the zoo was really close by to the theater at the time, and he says I'm going to stage a play about a pet. Pets and pet owners. And, hmm. you know, and he ended up with 14 animals on stage. That idea of failing, right? How do you control 14 animals on stage? And there are pet owners um, who have no idea what the theater. How do you work with that? And, and what comes out of that um, failure or that possibility of failure? And that has been very fruitful and productive. Uh, for Vivi Tejas and many other artists who worked under under that same um, program or, or method, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Lola Arias seems like kind of a kindred spirit to Vivi Tejas. Could you talk a bit about how uh, how her work kind of questions national history in in her context? Yeah, Lola Arias. Um, so the play Mi Vida Después, My Life After, which uh, premiered in 2009, was the last play that was supposed to happen in the macro project Biodrama, right? Biodrama started in 2002, and it had about 14 or 15 different plays by different directors. Stefan Caegui was one of them, but the, the, the main, the majority of the directors were Argentine. Rolarias was the last one, and by the time it premiered, um, Vivi Tejas had left the project, and so when it premiered, that play was not uh, premiered under Biodrama. However, the structure is of a Biodrama play, and... Um, and that what Lola Arias did is she basically took those instruments, those tools of that biodrama structure, right? Working with, uh, well, she actually worked with actors in this case, but working with actor, but working with a real story and how does does that real story, you know, relate to the theater? And 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 Lola Arias took it to a totally different uh, exponential, right? She worked with that, and then after that, she really. 
uh, did a lot of work with um, other artists. Actually, Stevan Kaegi used to uh, was her partner at the time. They did different plays in, in Sao Paulo, um, and then in Switzerland, and then also in Chile. Later on, uh, she did it on her own El Año en Que Nací. So she Lola Arias created a transnational kind of approach to theater, uh, where the, you know that that idea of the real can be seen in in different manifestations. One of the biggest, I would say, is when she did uh, Ciudades Paralelas, Parallel Cities, with Stefan Kaegi, that took place in different cities around the world, um, in Germany and Switzerland and Argentina and other places, where they invited other artists to work on the reel of some sort of event. So some artists worked on real events at the library, <laughs> some other ones at the court, um, some other ones like Lolarias did a, a play about the hotel and the maids that clean the hotels uh, behind us and the invisibility of this work and the, the migrancy of this work. Um, so I think, you know, it's um, from where it came from that idea, nascent idea of the biodrama, Lola Arias has taken that to a totally different level right now. And she keeps on, on, on working and creating that type of um, of work with, for example, migrants. Right now, she was working. She worked last year or two years ago with migrants uh, into Germany. She's living in Berlin, Germany, right now, and so it's. Uh, and the play was called Futureland with, and she worked with migrant children um, who were arriving in Germany, and how there she basically gave them a way to tell their stories in a very theatrical way but also exploring the real author stories, right? In a very theatrical way. And she also did a, a extended project, a multi-part project on the Malvinas slash Falklands uh, war. I'm not sure what terminology to use in this case, um, which, which was a, you know, obviously a, a conflict where two opposing right-wing governments uh, stirred up nationalist fervor to distract from their own regime's <laughs> domestic failures. So really no good guys in this conflict, for, at least from my point of view. Um, and, and yet Arias places the stories of combatants in that war together on the same stage. Yeah. Uh, what does that juxtaposition reveal? Um, I think that's one of the most fascinating plays that I've seen in many years. And it's fascinating because of the work that, that Lola Arias did curating it. Um, first of all, it's kind of a trilogy, right? Because um, she started with a video, uh, which she called um, Veterans. And it's a video installation where she worked with five different veterans from Argentina. And they're actually, it's a film because it's, they're looking at the camera and they're reenacting their stories, right? So they tell their stories while they're reenacting them. And then after that, she created the play uh, Campo Minado Minefield. And then after that, she created the Theater of War, uh, which is the, the, the film that we were talking about before. I think what was so key about Campo Minado or Minefield is that, yes, it's the dilemma of the Malvinas Falcons War in 1982, but she has six veterans, three from Argentina and three from Great Britain. One of those from uh, Great Britain is from Nepal, right? So it was a Nepali uh, Gurkha fighter, um, Gurkha soldier. So I, 
she, <laughs> this is so interesting because when she tried to actually get funding to do the play, to premiere the play in Buenos Aires, she couldn't find it. And she mm. couldn't because uh, theaters were kind of saying, wait, what? We're going to listen to the Brits to tell their stories? What? And Malvinas is so alive um, in Argentina that, you know, she had an, she had to say this is not about who, who was right or who was wrong. This is about the stories. This is about the, you know, the past. But it wasn't until it was premiered in, in, in England and it was so su- successful that she was able to finally find support in Argentina to mm. get the play, um, you know, premiered there. Uh, and actually it was premiered in the, uh, at a different theatrical, uh, the university had to, she had to find an, a different place to, to premiere because the theaters were still doubtful. So what was key here is that she did create one of the first times that you see real veterans with no acting training telling their stories, but also reenacting the stories of each other, working as a team, playing. Uh, they have they they have a band. They play in, they play as a music band live for at the during the the play. But they, there's also a lot of emotion and a lot of uh, work through them and friendship. You can see friendship. You can see emotions very raw um, during the play. So I think it's it's you know going back to your your first question about theater and film. Even though she created a film about this, it is that play that really gets you. I mean, it's just one of those moments that you see. Even if you were not part of it, even if you're not Argentine or British, even if you don't understand what that war was about. The fact that you see those veterans and sometimes they confront each other and sometimes they show you what that meant to them, that story meant to them, it is just heartbreaking. And at the same time, it's funny, it's it's, um, cruel sometimes, it's raw, um, but it's just a wonderful play. Another group you write about is Teatro Linea de Sombra, which is uh, a group from Mexico. And you write that this group combines uh, a commitment to very rigorous research, uh, academic research, anthropological research, and yet also a commitment to aesthetic beauty. Um, why is that important for this group to balance those two impulses? And, and how do they achieve that balance? Yeah, um, Teatro Linea Sombra is, um, to me, is one of those magnificent groups. You know, we're talking about the theater, the collective group in Latin America is still very much alive. Uh, there's a lot of theater groups like Teatro Linea Sombra who are doing amazing work. Uh, but Teatro Linea Sombra, I think they're quite distinct from other groups because they are a group that work with whatever um, matter or uh, topic they are researching. So the difference is that they're not just doing a play, for example, Amarillo, which is um, their most successful play from 2009. It's a play about, you know, telling the journey, the the story of of a person who's crossing the U.S.-Mexico border, right? And, And just the horrible travel and what happens during that time. But it's not they don't just do a play about that. What they do is they actually work with shelters. They um, work with the migrants. They give them the tools they need to be educated about what they're going to be doing. They, um, If they work with the shelters, they ask the shelters, what do you need? What can we help with? And they build a chapel. They, build an, um, they helped build uh, an oven to uh, bake 
bread. They uh, called, actually, they, they called a um, baker to teach them how to bake that bread in that oven. So I think it's, 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 a, it's one of those combinations of activism. They don't want to be seen as activists, but they, they kind of are. Um, and the work that they do as theater, theater practitioners, which if you ever get to see one of their plays, the the editing that goes editing that goes into it, the beauty that shows through the images that they create, the digital versions of the screen that they use, and how photography becomes almost a painting, um, and all of a sudden you you do know that you're seeing something about death and tragedy, but at the same time they create beauty within this somber um, topic. So. It's one of those groups that not only do they do residencies, long residencies and workshops and labs to research what they're doing, but they're actually, they walk the walk. They, they, they you know, they work with las patronas. Las patronas are these women who, um, you know, throw food at the uh, migrants who travel on top of La Bestia, right? The train. Mm-hmm. And they, they worked with them. They took the play Amarillo to Las Patronas in 2000, I believe 2013 or 2014, uh, to make, you know, to, to really have an emphasis on why this play and how they can actually make a political and social commentary on what's going on. And that's just one example. They do other topics and other plays, right? But um, I think that's one of the few groups that I can see with such a political and social commitment with such a high regard for theater aesthetics. It's not a propagandistic theater. It's not a pamphletarian theater. It's a, it's a beautiful theater, but it's also part of a social, a social activism that they do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you mostly write about either ensemble generated work or kind of director driven work in this book, but you also devote a chapter to the playwright Guillermo Calderon. Why did you want to place his work next to the theater groups that you write about? Well, Guillermo Calderon is the uh, most renowned theater uh, playwright director right now in Chile. And he calls himself one of the most politically outspoken (laughs) playwrights in Chile which he is, and he has always used documentary techniques, not uh, sometimes not to create documentary plays. There's a difference, right? Mm-hmm. You can mm-hmm. use a technique, but not really be documentary. So he, I, what I like about Calderon, and I think why it's so important to add it into a book about documentary theater in Latin America, is that he has worked with materials like documentary materials about, for example, Villa Grimaldi, which was one of the biggest uh, torture centers in Santiago de Chile, uh, to create a play that is not documentary in itself, but it does base itself in a real story. Mm -hmm. So I think to me, that is um, what his theater is so impactful. Um, Sorry. At the same time, you see that his work has kind of evolved and similar to how Lola Arias has this trilogy, how, you know, her place kind of evolved. He has the same thing. He used Jorge Mateluna as one of the uh, consultants to create the play School, 
and um, Jorge Mateluna had been a member of, um, you know, of, of the uh, far left uh, group uh, in during the dictatorship. He had been in imprisoned uh, for a few years, and they used him as you know, as a consultant to see if the play was telling the story right. The story is the, the play is about how the schools created uh, cells to react against Pinochet, right? And what they were doing, how they built bombs, for instance, and how, uh, why do they have to wear those um, uh, hoods, hoods to, to be, you know, invisible and to not and be anonymous, right? How, um, and so they called him to give them some sort of guidance well, what happened is then Mateluna was convicted of um, of stealing money from a bank, which he claims to be innocent, and all the data and, and information <laughs> tell us that he's innocent. So they created another play, and that is the most documentary play of almost the whole book, which is called Mateluna. And it's a play about the, a tribunal kind of play about why is this guy being held in prison when all the data shows that he was not, uh, he, that he was innocent, right? That he was not part of that robbery. And I think for me to write a book about Latin American theater of the 21st century and not add Calderon would have been a big gap because I mm-hmm. think even though he works differently than other ones that, you know, he is still um, very much a person that he's also worked in the, in theater groups. He used to be, have different theater groups, um, himself. Um, but yeah, he is a lot more, I would say maybe more like Lola Arias, right. That they're kind of their own in the sense of how they create their work. Why is it so important for Calderon in in so many of his plays to resist the idea that Chile should simply move on from the dictatorship? Why why is it important to keep that memory alive? Well, because um, you know, up until December two thousand nineteen, I believe uh, that you know we st- Chile still had uh, the constitution still had um, you know legislation created by Pinochet. I mean, still to this day, they're still trying to change a few things. Um, they just changed, and I believe it was um, October or November of 2020 that finally they changed part of the legislation from Pinochet about education. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if, you know, Pinochet did a lot more damage in the sense of, of creating legislation and creating this neoliberal state in Chile than in almost any other country in Latin America. And so for people like Calderon, um, it's not something that they can just forget and, you know, and keep on going. It's something that is present. It's not something from the past. If you're still living with a constitution that basically does and says what uh, the changes that uh, Pinochet put in place, and I believe in 1981, then, you know, what, what good do you have, um, you know, if you don't, if you don't, confront those issues. And so, for example, when he created the play Vija, Vija from Vija Grimaldi, um, Vija Grimaldi had not been uh, established as an official torture site. And I believe, and I did not look my numbers up before this interview, but it was uh, early 21st century. So, you know, so here we are, how many years after, right, 1990s when it ended, we're still seeing some, a lot of 
remnants of that dictatorship that they're hidden either in the in, in legislation or in ways of, of doing and, and, and living the economy. Yeah, I saw a protest sign from Chile that said neoliberal neoliberalism began in Chile and it will end in Chile. <laughs> let's let's hope, right? <laughs> let's hope, but I doubt it. But yes, um, you know, it's, it, I don't know if it began in Chile, but Chile was one of the ones that really did so much damage mm-hmm. to to that, and and they're kind of a central point of departure and for neoliberal policies. Yes, I would say yes. Well, Paula Hernandez, it's been so great to talk to you about your book, Staging Lives in Latin American Theater. Thanks so much for coming on New Books and Performing Arts. Well, thank you. And thank you for, for interviewing this. And I hope uh, I hope people read the book and enjoy it. <laughs>